Good. Okay. Greetings, everybody. Uh, this week, we catch up to Israel, and uh, we're going to have a double parasha, which is Chukat Balak. And truth to tell, Chukat Balak, Chukat alone has about five different great things to talk about. Paraduma, clearly, there's a lot to talk about in Paraduma. The story we're going to look at, which is next, which is the rock and Moshe and Aharon. Then there's the death of Aharon that takes place. There's the war against Sihon, there is, okay, six things. There is the conquest of the East Bank, which plays a huge role through the rest of the early uh, settlement history. And uh, of course, there's the Shirata Be'er, the, the um, song at the well, and everything that comes along with that, um, which is, uh, which a few years ago, I shared um, an interesting comment attributed to Yehuda Hasid about that. Um, and, uh, and about what happened to that song. Then, of course, there's Balak, which has so many things in it, besides the story Bill and the Donkey, and that whole problem that we've dealt with in the past, uh, the poetry of Bilam, the, the archaeological find of Sefer Bilam that we talked about a bunch of years ago, where they found the text, uh, a, a Midianite worship text that tells the story of Bilam from the other side of, of things. Um, and then, of course, at the end, besides all of the, the uh, apocalyptic kind of stuff at the end of Bilam's prophecy and the nature of Bilam as a prophet and everything else, uh, there's also, of course, the story at the very end, which is the sin with the daughters of Moab and the plague uh, that we talked about a little bit last week. So there's tons of stuff. And I'd like to focus on one which is not only um, uh, a central story in Bamidbar, but in, in a great sense, it's the story that drives all of Sefer Dvarim. Because if we start from before this story, if we get up to this story, our driving assumption, which is very safe, is that Moshe, Aharon, uh, and Miriam, who are the triumvirate who led B'nai Israel out of Mitzrayim, uh, Miriam more as, a, as an ancillary role, but still as part of the leadership team, are going to lead them into Israel. And the entire thing got delayed by close to 40 years because of the what we call Chetam Raguim. But nonetheless, there's no reason to think that that uh, troika, as it were, would, be, would not be intact. Um, the very beginning of this story already hits us with the first shock in that that's the death of Miriam. But by the time the dust settles in this very short story of 13 Sukim, Moshe and Aaron are already told that they are not going to lead the people into the land and that they're all going to die in the desert and that a new generation of leadership will take them into the land, which, of course, is what sets up the entire book of Dvarim as Moshe's farewell speech on the other side, on the east side, uh, in our vote Moab. So let's take a look at the story. And uh, we're going to do something here, which is a, uh, a pedagogic requirement, but it's one we don't often talk about explicitly, which is we need to remove uh, two things in order to appreciate this parasha, and truth to tell, in order to be able to appreciate any text that we know, to be able to appreciate it fully, we have to remove two things from our awareness and keep them in the back room. One of them is how things play out. When you read a story, if you already know the end, that's what we call a spoiler alert. If somebody tells you that, oh, uh, Bruce Willis was already dead at the beginning of The Sixth Sense, then the whole movie's kind of wrecked. The great thing of that, about that really very good cinematic piece, The Sixth Sense, was that the whole time you thought, I'm sorry for anybody who hasn't seen it, 
um, that Bruce Willis was alive and that this kid was actually seeing dead people. Um, and so the, the not knowing how the end of the story is gonna play out is critical to be able to appreciate the both emotional and also literary fine points, nuances, and direction of the story. So that's the first thing. When you come to read the Akedah, you gotta erase the fact that Yitzchak's gonna make it. You gotta even erase the fact that right after Shir, you're gonna get up and Mincha and say, Elohei Yitzchak and Elohei Yaakov. You gotta erase that and be in the moment. So that's critical for us understanding this story. The second thing is that we have to put aside, and it's something we've talked about a lot, put aside uh, interpretive memories. In other words, we've all been brought up knowing the stories of Tanakh and certainly the major stories in Chumash uh, from a young age, and we have a certain accoutrements around them, uh, which are not necessarily directly in the text, and which if we keep them hanging onto the text, the text becomes somewhat stultified and doesn't allow us the breadth that Chazal themselves enjoyed when looking at the text and being able to interpret. So we have to kind of drop all of that off to the side. So for instance, um, if uh, we're reading again, back to, uh, back to, well, let's go to Yosef, very popular story. And again, in the Yosef story, to go back to the first point, if we're studying the Yosef story, Yosef and his brothers at the beginning, and we know that Yosef is gonna get pulled out of the pit and Yosef is gonna be sold as a slave and he's gonna to rise to greatness in Egypt and gonna save the family, then a lot of the drama of the story is gone. But when we see the brothers attack Yosef and threaten to kill him, we should be shocked, we should be upset, we should be worried, we should be anxious. And when Ruben steps in, we should have hope that that's gonna work. And when it fails, we should be disappointed. We have to kind of ride along like a good surfer on the wave of the story and be able to appreciate it and not immediately crash on land. Uh, the second thing is that when Yosef gets thrown into the second pit and the text says, uh, there's no water in that pit, and immediately the famous Gemara that Rashi quotes that we all know, which is there was no water there, but there were snakes and scorpions, and we immediately picture Yosef in a pit with snakes and scorpions, that again limits us as far as just being able to see the story. We have to see the story on its own terms in the text. Later on, once we've studied it and analyzed it, then if we want to bring in certain midrashic elements and other interpretive pieces, we can. So let's take a look at the story. Again, the whole story is here on page one. Everybody got it in an email, and uh, I'll slide it up uh, in the Hebrew here. Uh, and it's 13 psukim, the whole thing. And here we go. Now this comes immediately after the command of Paraduma and all the details of Paraduma. And Paraduma comes immediately after all of the, the end of Parsha Korach, which has all of the special gifts given to the Kohanim and all of those laws, which means we are not in any chronological framework here. And suddenly the text tells us a story and it goes back to story mode because remember throughout all of Korach, we had no story mode. We had, we had no, sorry, we had no chronological frame of reference. We have no idea when it happened. We had to get a chronological frame of reference. We have to go back to the very beginning of the scout story when we're told that they went out during the summer because of you may be Kuryan Avim. We're also not told what year it is. And, and we're not given a specific month. 
here suddenly we find out So Bnei Israel come, the entire group comes to Midbar Tzin, and they come in the first month. The first month of what? So the first month we know in the Torah means the month we'll call Nisan. But this is the first month of what year we don't know. So we know that this has to be um, sometime after the second year, because the first year we're still in Egypt. The second year we're, we're just dedicating the Mishkan. This story is not going to happen with movement because we don't move until the second month. So this has to be sometime after the third year. Chazal understand that this is actually the 40th year. And I'll make that argument based on location, that this is the 40th year. Uh, although, believe it or not, one of the Rishonim actually says that this entire episode happened before we got to Har Sinai. Um, not this episode, the next piece with the rock. Uh, but nonetheless, this piece we're going to have to read as being in the 40th year, which means we are now about to start the last year of travels. And B'nai Israel know that. Now, Midbar Tzin, from everything that we know, is uh, a desert that's really in the Negev. It's uh, not, not all that far from Arad. It's further to the east. Uh, and it would be the way that Bnei Yisrael would be walking when they would ultimately end up going around Edom and then going into Moab. Okay. They sit in a place called Kadesh. Now, as we know, when we're reading through, they settle in a place called Kadesh, as we know, when we're reading through the narratives in Tanakh, often a place will, be, will identify a place by a name, and then we'll get what we call the etiology, the backstory of how it got that, na that name in the story that we're reading, which means they came to a place called uh, Leisure World, and there was nobody there, and they set up cabanas, and they felt a lot of leisure, so they called it Leisure World. In other words, the place didn't have a name first. They did something there, and as a result of doing it, then they gave it the name. We're going to find that the same is true here. And we find the same thing with Bochim in, uh, in the beginning of the second chapter of Shoptim. We find the same thing with Givat um, Ha'aralot in, uh, in, in, in Yoshua in, uh, in Parakeh, and maybe with Gilgal. Places they get named, we're told they arrive in the place, and then we're told a story, and the story is the reason it has that name. Okay. So they come to a place called Kadesh, and now Vatamot Sham Miriam Vatikaver Sham. Now notice that there's a, uh, an extra word here. Before we go any further, Vatamot Sham Miriam Vatikaver Sham. You know, there's no reason to say the word Sham. We really don't have to say it at all. We certainly don't have to say it twice. Miriam died there, and she was buried there. Right? So um, what's the purpose of saying that Miriam, I mean, we have, to, we have to know that Miriam died. The question is, do we really have to know that Miriam died? How frequently do we hear about deaths slash funerals, deaths and things related to, to the follow-up? How often do we hear about them in Tanakh? Whose death do we actually hear about in Tanakh? So we hear about uh, the death of all of the begats in the beginning of Bereshit, mainly to establish a time frame. Right? We don't hear about their funeral, their burial, or anything else. We just hear they lived this long and died and had a bunch of kids. And, you know, this one lived this long and had this age, had kids, and lived this much longer and died, etc. And the first person who we actually hear about anything funerary about is Sarah. But the reason we hear about Sarah's death and funerals, really, it seems pretty clear from the text, is because we need to hear about the purchase of Machpelah. You know, that Avram finally gets land in Israel, in Canaan. 
we then hear about Avraham's death, but Avraham's death isn't necessary because he's buried next to Sarah, right? So the same thing can be said for Yitzchak Leah. By the way, we don't hear about her death. We hear years later that she was buried uh, next to Yaakov. We don't hear about Rivka's death. We hear that she was buried next to Yitzchak. Rachel's death is critical to hear about because the birth of Binyamin. It's the location where Binyamin is born. In other words, when people die and we hear about their death and the funeral, it's mainly because of something else going on. So Miriam's death is really not that critical for itself. Why is it mentioned here? It seems that the word sham is a critical piece of the puzzle. Batamot sham Miriam, batikaver sham. Okay, now, um, let's keep that in mind. We're gonna come back to it in a couple minutes, but I'd like to take uh, uh, a look further in the psukim. All right, there was no water. The people had no water. Now, this, by the way, is a problem endemic throughout the desert. Wherever you go in the desert, there's no water. And you've got to find an oasis, which Ben Israel evidently led to along the way, oasis. And then they gather. And this is something that we've heard about in Shemot, uh, the people complaining about lack of water. They all gather against Moshe and Aharon um, uh, to complain about the lack of water, it seems. We're going to find that they actually don't say that. But we assume that they're going to come and complain about the lack of water. Now, parenthetically, I talked about interpretive memory. Interpretive memory right now would say, oh, Pasuk Aleph and Bet are connected, and they're causal. And the reason there's no water is because Miriam died. Because as long as Miriam was alive, there was a rolling well that came with B'nai Israel, and that gave the water. She died, the well dried up, and that was it. There are several problems with reading that as shot in the Psukim. First of all, because there's, of course, no mention of Ber Miriam anywhere in Tanakh. That's A. But B, you would then wonder why was it that we had to be led to water and given water when we left Egypt at Marah and at Merivah, and that the answer wasn't just that we had a bear. And even at the beginning of chapter 16, before the whole Man story, it says, B'nai Israel come to Elim, and there's 70 date palms, and there's, uh, and there's pools there. Um, uh, so that they're, they come to an oasis. So if they have Bear Miriam, what do they need that for? Uh, it seems these two are not necessarily causally related, but there's something else going on. Now, they, there's no water, but what does that mean? Is it that they're thirsty or is there something else going on? We don't know until we hear them talk. So let's hear what they have to say. They, they quarrel with Moshe. What do they say? Would that we had died with our brothers before Hashem. Does that mean in the, throughout the desert period when they all died during the 40 years? Does it mean the death of the, during the plague of Korach of 14,700? We don't know what it means, but it means that we wish we would have died then. Why? And again, you would assume the next thing would be, instead, we're going we're gonna to die of thirst. They don't say that. Why did you bring God's people to this desert? So that we and our cattle should all, should all die here. Why, what, what is the problem? In other words, wherever they've gone, they found water. And so you brought us here to this desert to die. Okay, so let's move and find water somewhere. And the second thing is, the more critical point is, notice what they say, Lamaha Vetem, why did you bring? Now, how did they decide where to go? So we learned that earlier in Bamidbar. There's a cloud lifts up, 
and they follow the cloud and the cloud settles down and the camp set up the camp and they set up the Mishkan and that's where they settle. So why are they saying to Moshe, why did you lead us? Why did Hashem lead us? We'll see that that's really the core of the problem. But there's a second challenge. Pasukei. Why did you bring us up out of Mitzrayim? To bring us to this bad place. Now, this is a very strange thing, and I'll explain in a minute. This is not a place of planting, or of figs, or of grapevines, or of pomegranates. And there's also no water. Notice water comes at the very end of this list. What are they asking for? Why do they expect there to be grapes here and figs here? So their complaint is a very strange complaint. So we'll take a look at the next pasuka, and we're going to look back and try to understand what the complaint's really about. It's not about water. And this is a move that we saw three times in the Korach story. We've seen it, we saw it in the, in the Miraglim story, uh, where Moshe and Aharon's response to the people's challenge and complaint is to fall on their face in front of Hashem, whether it is for tefillah, to pray to Hashem, not to punish the people, whether it's for nevuah, to get guidance, what to do, whether it's bushah, the Rishonim, going all, all those directions. And God's glory appears to them. To them here seems to be, not to be Israel, but to Moshe and Aharon, so we can anticipate now a response from God and we'll get one. But let's look at this story on its own and see what's happening without, just with the Tanakh, everything before this in Tanakh in front of us. Okay, going back to the beginning. B'nai Israel come, the whole congregation comes to meet Bartzin, and we're told a date, and we're told that they settle in a place called Kadesh, and then we're told that Miriam dies there, and she's buried there. Now, we are, we, we have to, and something we've talked about numerous times, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are involved in this story in order to be able to understand the story properly. We have been marching for, it turns out now, 38 plus years, 39 years, however long it's been, um, almost 39 years, and we come to this place, and suddenly Miriam dies. Now, Remember, our perception was that this family of leadership, who was already well past their years, uh, is going to lead us into Israel. Miriam dies. Now, did she die before we got to Israel? Or did she die in Israel? I don't know. I don't know where we are. So what do I find out? I find out that she's buried there. And the text emphasizes she's buried there. Why is being buried there significant? Please take a look on the second page and uh, take a look at source one on the second page. When Bnei Israel left Mitzrayim, Moshe took Yosef's bones. Why did Yosef, Moshe take Yosef's bones? Yosef made his brothers take an oath that when the day that God finally remembers you and brings you out of this land, you'll take my bones with you and you'll bury me back in Canaan. Now, you are B'nai Israel, and you are familiar with the camp, you're familiar with the Mishkan, and you know that in the middle of the camp of the Mishkan, which is the camp around the Mishkan, the capital of Im, there is a box. And what's that box? That box is Yosef's bones, being kept by Moshe Rabbeinu, being kept by the Levim. Oh, why can't we bury Yosef? Because we have to bury Yosef back in Canaan. Okay, very nice. 
Suddenly you find out Miriam dies. Imagine everybody's probably mourning, Miriam dies. And then what do you see next? Miriam is buried here. If Miriam is buried here, what does that tell you? I guess we're in Israel. Miriam is buried here. It must be that we are in Eretz Israel now. All right, so the people now have reason to think that we've arrived. If they think that we've arrived, then the lack of water suddenly becomes a critical problem. Because what were they told about coming to the land? In the desert, we understand we have to find an oasis. Maybe once in a while, we have to find a miraculous rock like the one in, in Bishalach that Moses is going to hit and get us water. When we come to the land that Hashem has promised us, a land flowing of milk and honey, a land with all these nations who have successfully settled there, we expect there to be water there. And the first place that we have a reason to think we're in the land, suddenly there's no water. So the crisis is not one of thirst. The crisis is a much more existential crisis of location. And so now what do they turn around and say? In other words, all of this travel, all of this sacrifice, everything that we went through was to come to this? And so they say in Pasuk Gimel, we should have died with our brothers in front of Hashem. So you brought us to this desert. This echoes Natan Aviram's complaint that we heard last week, which is, you didn't bring us to a land milk and, uh, flowing of milk and honey. You took, it took us fr from a land flowing of milk and honey, i.e. Egypt, to this terrible place. But here the claim has some teeth to it, because if this is the land of Israel, what kind of place is this? And what's going to happen? We're going to die here. We and our cattle are all going to die here. And then, and then they say something which is absolutely mind-boggling if we don't see it in this context. I'll give you an example. There is a family that is moving in a normal summer, not like this summer, in a normal summer, is moving from um, Teaneck to Los Angeles. Okay? And, uh, and they, uh, they have four kids, and they have a beautiful home in Teaneck, and they pack their home up, and they sell their home, and they get in the car, and they, and they start driving. And they sit, tell the kids, you know, you get to Los Angeles, we're going to have an even bigger house, and we're going to have a, a basement, and we're going to have an extra story, and we're going to have a huge lawn, and we're going to be um, three miles away from a gorgeous beach, and, uh, and there's gorgeous hills around. You're going to see it's just me great. And the kids get very, very excited about it. They got to like to go mountain biking. They like to do all this kind of stuff. And so they're in the car, and they're doing their cross-country drive. And they, on the way, they stop in, um, uh, and they stop, and they, um, and they stop in Iowa on the way. Road trip. They stop in Iowa. They stop at a little motel right off of uh, I-80, I would assume if it's Iowa. And they go to the hotel and the parents tell the kids, okay, you go to the pool and, you know, there's a snack shop and whatever, right? Stuff, you don't have to, no masks, no sanitizer. It's a normal year. And, uh, and the kids turn around and say, where's the beach? Where are the mountains? Is Iowa now. Where's the beach? Where's the mountains? Where's the sunshine? It's a Midwest rainstorm in the summer. And what kind of weird question is that? We're not there yet. Why would you ask a weird question? So you imagine for these people who are walking in the middle of the desert on their way to Israel, look what they ask. Why did you bring us to this terrible place, a place where there is no seed and no tein? We're going to talk about those three things in a minute. And there's no water. Now, again, the water is, is, the, is the last of the problems. That's a technical problem we can take care of. That's not the problem. The problem is one of location. Notice what they ask about. They ask about three things. Figs, 
grapes, and pomegranates. Why those three? Because either they, if they're older, or their parents told them, if they're younger, that when we sent scouts to the land, what did the scouts bring back? Figs and pomegranates and grapes. So in other words, they assume that they've come to the land of figs, pomegranates, and grapes, and they don't see them anywhere. So how could this be the land? And so Moshe and Aharon, oddly enough, don't turn around and say, hey guys, this is not Eretz Yisrael, we're not there yet. Because we still have the problem of Etikavershan, why is Miriam buried there? And so they come and they come to Hashem because they realize that there is a more essential problem that's happening here. As long as Moshe and Aharon are making the decisions about where they're going to camp, then you can challenge them and say, why'd you bring us to this place? And correct us and clarify. But since that's not the case, but the people seem to think it is the case, there is a more essential issue going on. And that essential issue is one of we did not learn from our parents' mistakes. Throughout Shmot, in the wandering narratives in Shmot, the constant complaint is against Moshe. The people are convinced Moshe is the one who's leading them. It's so much so that when Moshe goes up to the mountain and doesn't come down, they're convinced that God is gone and they need another God to lead them. Right? That's the crisis that leads to Egal Azahat. But we would hope that by now, in a new generation, this generation that was born or at least raised free in the desert and not as slaves, would be able to have a little bit more of a sophisticated appreciation and understand that it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu who took them. And guess what? It hasn't happened. So what's the real correction that has to happen here? Give them water? No, that's not the problem. The real correction that has to happen is don't think that Moshe and Aaron are leading you you know who's leading you? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is leading you. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes care of you everywhere. Right? And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is leading you, then wherever you're going, that's where you need to be. And if this is the land, then you have to turn a corner before you find the the, the Gefen Vrimon. And if it's not the land, you'll figure out why Miriam was buried there. We'll deal with that, as long as you understand that's from Hashem. Okay, so what's Hashem's response to Moshe and Aaron? It's interesting, because you would think Hashem would say, go stand in front of the people and tell them this is not there yet. We bury Miriam here because whatever reason. Right, just like Rachel was buried on the way, we couldn't carry the body on the way, uh, and it wasn't already in an ossuary like Yosef, so he buried her out of Kovanamek, for whatever reason. Instead, what does he say? Here we go. Right? So he says, take the stick. What's the stick? The stick is the staff, the same staff that Moshe used to to stick over the Yam Suf and have it open and then to close it. The same uh, staff that Moshe used to hit the rock back on Har Sinai and had the water out in Parsha Peshalach. I take that staff. Gather the group, you and Aharon, your brother. Now this is tricky. Literally, it means speak to the rock in front of them, and it'll give forth its water. The problem with this, of course, is that this is just too weird. Speak to a rock. Where do you ever find anywhere in Tanakh that anybody is ever asked to, commanded to, assumed to speak to an inanimate object? The best you get is Bill and his donkey having a conversation, and a donkey is animate. That's why it's an animal. It's a very strange thing. It's important to note that in Tanakh, the preposition El and the position Al 
and no allusion to our national airline are often interchanged. I could bring you several examples of where L is used when it actually means about, and where all is used when it actually means towards. And I think that's how we have to read this here. And he says, go out, gather the people, take the staff, go speak about the rock, about the rock in front of them and let it give forth its, its, uh, its water. What are they supposed to say? Well, you'll get water out of the rock and you'll give water to the people and to their cattle, right? Which, which therefore seems to be a, a tertiary concern. You give them water, that'll solve the problem. No, that's the essential concern. Because what you really have to show them is that it's not you leading, it is HaKadosh Baruch Hu leading. And wherever HaKadosh Baruch Hu is taking you, he will take care of you and he's taking you to the right place. Which means, Moshe, what are you charged with doing? Do something miraculous in front of them, which will solve the immediate need, which is what they got their eyes on, which is the water, but will also solve the much deeper existential religious need, which is to educate them as to who's in charge. And how do you do that? Don't go in front of the rock and just hit it like you did in Shemot, because at that point, we're not ready for it. But here, say something about it. What do we think Moshe is supposed to say? I think the simplest assumption is, Moshe is supposed to get up there and say, do you think I could do this? Do you think I could get water out of a rock? I'm going to hit the rock, and water is going to come out, and you will know that it's not me, that only HaKadosh Baruch Hu could do that. So don't think that I'm leading you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is leading you. That's what we think he would say. That's what he's supposed to say. Watch what happens. Pasuk Tet, Moshe is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. So Moshe takes the stick from in front of Hashem because the stick is in the Mishkan, in the, in the Kodesh Kodoshim, and he, just like Hashem commanded him. And they gather, Moshe and Aaron gather the group, the whole nation in front of the rock. Okay, so far so good. What does Moshe say? Listen, you rebels. And by the way, the Rambam, we're, 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 we're quite familiar with the fact that there are so many things attributed to Moshe here because everybody's trying to find out what Moshe did wrong. And it got to the point that Shadal in the 19th century said that so many people have attributed so many bad things to Moshe, I don't even want to say my opinion because I don't want to add to the rap sheet. You know, whether Moshe wasn't supposed to hit the rock and he did, Rashi, whether he hit it twice as opposed to hitting it once, whether he spoke in anger like the Rambam says, everybody's got a different take on it. But he takes the rock as he's supposed to, and they gather the people, and then Moshe says, Listen, you rebels. This is a rhetorical question. Are we going to get water from you for, out of the rock for you? Now, here's where the tr trick goes. A rhetorical question works when there is a cultural sympathy between the one posing the question and when the one who is responding, or shall we say the addresser and the addressee. When a parent and a child, and the child's been in their parent's home their whole life, and the parent turns to the child and says, you call that a haircut? The child understands I didn't get a good haircut. When the parent says to the child, and should only be parent to child or teacher to student, uh, when he says, you call that a clean room? He understands the room's a mess. I got to clean it up again. That only works when there's cultural dialogue, meaning when they speak the same language and understand it. Now, what did Moshe say here? 
Hamin hasela hazen otzilachemayim. Are we going to get water from you from this rock? Now, how do we understand that? So there's several ways. One way to say it is, do you think we'd be capable of getting water? It must be Hashem, which is the message he's supposed to give. But on the other hand, it could mean, do you think you guys are worthy of getting water out of this? Which is another way to read the rhetorical question, but it has a whole different sting to it. It's not about who's in charge, but it's about the worthiness of the group. Or do you think that hitting the rock would get the, the, the water out? Do you think that speaking to the rock, whatever it may be, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. Now, again, if the leader and the people are speaking the same language and understand each other, then a rhetorical question works. If they don't, you got to go back to declarative statements, which, which in this case would be, I am going to hit the rock, water is going to come out, and you will know that this is Hashem. Should have been declarative, but it wasn't. What happens? He raises his hand. He hits the rock twice. And water comes out. And the people and their animals all drink. Now, by the way, let's stop and think. If, Moshe, if what Moshe did by hitting the rock was sinful, so why does Hashem let water come out? In other words, Hashem told Moshe, supposedly, to only speak, and instead he hit. Why does he allow water to come out? Or if he did it with anger, or whatever of the other things, why, do water, why does water come out? Because that's not the real issue. The people need water. The people need water. That's not the point here. The point here is to educate the people about who's really leading them. And Moshe had that opportunity. What's Hashem's response? I took care of the people and I gave them water. In the meantime, you, Moshe, and Aharon, as the leadership, one thing's very clear to me is you no longer speak the language of this generation. So what does he say? Now, I don't know how the translation has that because you did not believe in me. Bad translation. Here probably should be translated, you did not cause others to trust me. You did not generate trust among others. To sanctify me in front of B'nai Israel. That's what would have happened if you'd done this right. Notice what the punishment is. It's not really the punishment as much as the consequence. Therefore, you will not bring this people to the land, which means you can no longer be the leaders. This is not the only time that HaKadosh Baruch Hu relieves leaders of their leadership. And I don't just mean by organizing coup uh, like uh, Baasha against Yeravam's son or uh, Yehu against Ahab's household. I mean, when HaKadosh Baruch actually fires somebody and says, you're no longer the leader, like Hashem famously did to Eliyahu Anavi on Har Sinai, of, no, of all places. And here, HaKadosh Baruch says to Moshe and Aaron, you guys are fired. Doesn't mean you can't go into the land. It doesn't mean you have to die here. It does mean you cannot lead them into the land. Why? Because you, you're not, you can't speak their language anymore. You're not the leader that, that, they, that they'll respond to. Haraya, you, were, you had a moment that you could have given the right message, and because of the way you phrased it, they didn't get that message. And that's what it's all about. And now the text says, which is a little bit of a conundrum at the end. These are the waters of quarreling, where Bnei Yisrael quarreled with Hashem, and he became sanctified, bam. Now what does bam mean? Through them means through the waters? We'll have to see. That last pasuk is a little bit difficult because if you look at Pasuk Yod Bet, Hashem says, 
because you did not sanctify me, and then the last two words are, and Hashem was sanctified. So which is it? Was he sanctified or not? So let's take a look at a couple of the psukim on page two. Um, um, the idea of, being, of Hashem's name being sanctified happens in various styles. We read about chiefly in Sefer Vayikra. There is, of course, sanctification through living a holy life. Kedoshim to you. You live a holy life. You sanctify God's name. Viten Kedoshim Leloechem. We saw that a couple weeks ago in Parshat Shlach. You observe the mitzvot, you stay loyal to the mitzvot, you don't stray, you're sanctified to God. There's another kind of kedusha, which is what we would call dying al kedush Hashem. And the prime example of that, of course, is Nadav and Avihu. And after Nadav and Avihu die, what does Moshe say to Aaron as some form of consolation? That's what God said. I am sanctified through those who are close to me. And after all, the whole story of Yom Kippur, the whole mitzvah of Yom Kippur, is introduced with Acharei Mochne B'nei Aaron. And they're sanctified through that death. Now notice, um, notice that, um, that the end, I want to take a look at the, at the very bottom, at the, that the, at the very end of it, um, uh, this passage, I think that we have to read it a little more carefully. We have in Tanakh numerous examples of what we call Hama'amar Hamuskar, the parenthetic statement. We've seen several of these in different places. I'd like to suggest, and you can see it laid out here in the last source, that we have at the very end is a parenthetic statement, meaning, I'm going to do it reading, skipping the parentheses. Ya'an lohem antembi, you did not generate trust or, or belief in me. Israel, but to sanctify me in front of B'nai Israel. Therefore, you will not bring the people by Kadesh Bam. And God was sanctified through them. Who's them? Not the waters. Hashem is sanctified through Moshe and Aharon. Hashem is sanctified by the removal of Moshe and Aharon from the leadership, not by their death, which doesn't happen now, and it's going to happen in different stages along the way, but rather by the removal from the position, just like Nadav and Avihu. Hashem, Hashem's name gets sanctified. You did not sanctify my name, so I have to step in and have my name sanctified by removing you from leadership. And Hashem is stepping in and B'nai Yisrael then finding out that the leaders that they've been with the whole time have been removed because they can no longer lead effectively because they can't communicate properly with this generation um, is the sanctification of Hashem's name. You take a look in source five when Moshe is told by Hashem, come on up to the mountain, and die, you're not going to lead the people in because of this story. Um, Hashem, Moshe makes the one demand he ever makes of God. By Daber Moshe el Adonai Lemor, a reversal, the most popular pasuka of Tanakh, Hashem, Moshe commands Hashem, as it were, and that is Yifkod Adonai Le'archod Chobasar God, who, who knows the spirits of all people, should command somebody to be the leader. And he makes his, 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 his case, and Hashem answers, look at the four, source five. So Hashem says to Moshe, take Yoshua Minun, a man who has the spirit. Rashi, very illuminative in its comment, says, Yoshua is somebody because he understands how to work with everybody. 
That's, by the way, Yoshua's silence in the story of the Miraglim, as opposed to Kalev, is what earned him this position. He knew when the right time to speak was, the right time to be silent. He understood Kohelet Gimel. Eight lachshot daver. And Yeshua also understands how to deal with different people. He knows how to speak with them. Maybe because he's part of that younger generation. For whatever reason, that's why he's selected. And that's why Moshe now cannot finish the job. There's a phenomenal, wild midrash in source six that I'll just summarize quickly, is that when Hashem said to, um, to Moshe that you cannot lead the people, so Moshe said, fine, I'll go into the land and I'll be Yehoshua's right-hand man. We'll switch positions. And so Hashem says to him, okay, let's try it for a day. And uh, take a look in the second line. So for one day, Yoshua walked around, for one hour, Yoshua walked around the camp, and Moshe is his aide-de-camp. They went into the Ohel, and Yoshua went in, and the cloud stopped and kept Moshe out. When the cloud lifted, Moshe said to Yoshua, I knew, what did Hashem have to say? When Hashem spoke to you, did you tell me what, he, what happened? In other words, the shoes on the other foot, how's it feel? At that point, Moshe said, I'd rather die a hundred deaths than, than be jealous once. In other words, Moshe said, you're giving me the opportunity to enter the land as a citizen. I cannot do it. I'd rather die here as the leader who has to leave his position as opposed to being devoted to a regular citizen. Interesting high, uh, insight about the idea that Moshe here is not told you'll, you can't enter the land, but you can't lead them into the land. Okay. What we've seen over the course of the last um, 40 minutes or so is this very famous story about Moshe and the rock. And again, we come with, uh, with an interpretive memory. Somebody actually, uh, um, and so um, in any case, what we've seen here is that uh, in this parasha, is that the text throws out hints right at the beginning, and then it's actually quite explicit that what the real crisis here is one of location. The people don't, the people don't know they're wandering anymore. They think they've come home, and they don't understand this is nothing like what they're supposed to see, but the real underlying problem is that they don't, they still, this new generation still thinks Moshe is the one making the decisions, Moshe is the one leading them, Moshe is the one calling the shots, and they don't appreciate that it's really all HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the Makodesh Baruch Hu then gives Moshe and Aaron the responsibility to educate them properly. And because there is a disconnect in communication between Moshe and this new generation, they don't understand the message. Moshe and Aaron fail to be Mekadesh et Hashem. And as a result of that, Hashem is Mit Kadesh, sanctifies himself by moving them from the positions of leadership, which ultimately, of course, leads to the ascendance of Yehoshua.